Chapter Six of the Fathers of Confederation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Fathers of Confederation: A Chronicle of the Birth of the Dominion by A. H. U. Cahoon. Chapter Six: The Quebec Conference. The Quebec Conference began its sessions on the 10th of October, 1864. It was now the task of the delegates to challenge and overcome the separatist tendencies that had dominated British America since the dismemberment of the empire eighty years before. They were to prove that a new nationality could be created which should retain intact the connection with the mother country for an event of such historic importance no better setting could have been chosen than the ancient capital with its striking situation and its hallowed memories of bygone days the delegates were practical and experienced men of affairs but they lacked neither poetic and imaginative sense nor knowledge of the past and it may well be that their labors were inspired and their deliberations influenced by the historic associations of the place the gathering was remarkable for the varied talents and forceful character of its principal members and here it may be noted that the constitution was not chiefly the product of legal minds brown tilly galt tupper and others who shared largely in the work of construction were not lawyers the conference represented fairly the different interests and occupations of a young country it is to be recorded too that the conclusions reached were criticized as the product of men in a hurry edward gough penny editor of the montreal herald a keen critic and afterwards a senator complained that the actual working period of the conference was limited to fourteen days joseph howe poured scorn upon ottawa as the capital stating that he preferred london the seat of empire where there were preserved the archives of a nationality not created in a fortnight still more vigorous were the protests against the secrecy of the discussions a number of distinguished journalists including several english correspondents who had come across the ocean to write about the civil war were in quebec and they were disposed to find fault with the precautions taken to guard against publicity the following memorial was presented to the delegates the undersigned representatives of english and canadian newspapers find that it would be impossible for them satisfactorily to discharge their duties if an injunction of secrecy be imposed on the conference and stringently carried into effect they therefore beg leave to suggest whether while the remarks of individual members of your body are kept secret the propositions made and the treatment they meet with might not advantageously be made public and whether such a course would not best accord with the real interests committed to the conference such a kind of compromise between absolute secrecy and unlimited publicity is usually we believe observed in cases where a european congress holds the peace of the world and the fate of nations in its hands and we have thought that the british american conference might perhaps consider the precedent not inapplicable to the present case such a course would have the further advantage of preventing ill-founded and mischievous rumors regarding the proceedings from obtaining currency this ingenious appeal was signed by s phillips day of the london morning herald 
by Charles Lindsay of the Toronto Leader, and by Brown Chamberlain of the Montreal Gazette. Among the other writers of distinction in attendance were George Augustus Sala of the London Daily Telegraph, Charles Mackay of the Times, Livesey of Punch, and George Brega of the New York Herald. But the conference stood firm, and the impatient correspondents were denied even the mournful satisfaction of brief daily protocols. They were forced to be content with overhearing the burst of cheering from the delegates, when Macdonald's motion proposing federation was unanimously adopted. The reasons for maintaining strict secrecy were thus stated by John Hamilton Gray, a delegate from New Brunswick, who afterwards became the historian of the Confederation movement. After much consideration, it was determined, as in Prince Edward Island, that the Convention should hold its deliberations with closed doors. In addition to the reasons which had governed the Convention at Charlottetown, it was further urged that the views of individual members, after a first expression, might be changed by the discussion of new points, differing essentially from the ordinary current of subjects that came under their consideration in the more limited range of the provincial legislatures, and it was held that no man ought to be prejudiced or be liable to the charge in public that he had on some other occasion advocated this or that doctrine, or this or that principle, inconsistent with the one that might then be deemed best in view of the future union to be adopted liberals and conservatives had there met to determine what was best for the future guidance of half a continent not to fight old party battles or stand by old party cries and candor was sought for more than mere personal triumph the conclusion arrived at it is thought was judicious it ensured the utmost freedom of debate the more so inasmuch as the result would in no way be binding upon those whose interests were to be affected until and unless adopted after the greatest publicity and the fullest public discussions that the conference decided wisely admits of no doubt the provincial secretaries of the several provinces were appointed joint secretaries and hewitt bernard chief clerk of the department of the attorney-general for upper canada was named executive secretary in his longhand notes found among the papers of sir john macdonald and made public thirty years later by Sir Joseph Pope, we have the only official record of the resolutions and debates of the conference. Posterity has reason to be grateful for even this limited revelation of the proceedings from day to day. It enables us to form an idea of the difficulties overcome, and of the currents of opinion which combine to give the measure its final shape no student of canadian constitutional history will leave unread a single note thus fortunately preserved the various draft motions we are told by sir joseph pope are nearly all in the handwriting of those who moved them and it was evidently the intention to prepare a complete record the conference was however much hurried at the close when it began sir etienne Taché, prime minister of canada was unanimously elected chairman Footnote. A list of the delegates, who are now styled the Fathers of Confederation, follows. From Canada, twelve delegates, Sir Etienne P. Taché, Receiver-General and Minister of Militia, John A. Macdonald, Attorney-General for Upper Canada, George E. Cartier, Attorney-General for Lower Canada, 
George Brown, President of the Executive Council, Oliver Mowat, Postmaster General, Alexander T. Galt, Minister of Finance, William McDougall, Provincial Secretary, T. Darcy McGee, Minister of Agriculture, Alexander Campbell, Commissioner of Crown Lands, J. C. Chepe, Commissioner of Public Works, Hector L. Langevin, Solicitor General for Lower Canada, James Cockburn, Solicitor General for Upper Canada. From Nova Scotia, five delegates, Charles Tupper, Provincial Secretary, William A. Henry, Attorney General, R. B. Dickey, Member of the Legislative Council, Jonathan McCulley, Member of the Legislative Council, Adams G. Archibald, Member of the Legislative Assembly. From New Brunswick, seven delegates, Samuel Leonard Tilley, Provincial Secretary, William H. Steves, Minister Without Portfolio, J. M. Johnston, Attorney General, Peter Mitchell, Minister Without Portfolio, E. B. Chandler, Member of the Legislative Council, John Hamilton Gray, Member of the Legislative Assembly, Charles Fisher, Member of the Legislative Assembly. From Prince Edward Island, seven delegates, Colonel John Hamilton Gray, President of the Council, Edward Palmer, Attorney General, William H. Pope, Colonial Secretary, A. A. MacDonald, Member of the Legislative Council, George Coles, Member of the Legislative Assembly, T. Heath Haviland, Member of the Legislative Assembly, Edward Whalen, Member of the Legislative Assembly. From Newfoundland, two delegates, F. B. T. Carter, Speaker of the Legislative Assembly, and Ambrose Shea. End footnote. Each province was given one vote, except that Canada, as consisting of two divisions, was allowed two votes. After the vote on any motion was put, the delegates of a province might retire for consultation among themselves. The conference sat as if in committee of the whole, so as to permit of free discussion and suggestion. The resolutions, having been passed in committee of the whole, were to be reconsidered and carried as if Parliament were sitting with the Speaker in the chair. The first motion, which was offered by MacDonald and seconded by Tilly, read, that the best interests and present and future prosperity of British North America will be promoted by a federal union under the crown of Great Britain, provided such union can be effected on principles just to the several provinces. This motion, general in its terms, asserted the principle which the conference had met to decide. It passed unanimously amid much enthusiasm. To support it, one may think, involved no serious responsibility, since any province could at a later stage raise objections to any methods proposed in carrying out the principle. But to secure the hearty and unanimous acceptance of a federal union as the basis on which the provinces were ready to coalesce, was really to submit the whole issue to the crucial test. MacDonald's motion reflects, in its careful and comprehensive phrasing, the skill in parliamentary tactics, of which he had during many years displayed so complete a mastery, to commit the conference at the outset to endorsement of the general principle, was to render subsequent objection on some detail, however important, extremely difficult for earnest and broad-minded patriots. 
the two small provinces might withdraw from the scheme as they subsequently did but the larger provinces led by men of the calibre of tupper and tilly would feel that any subsequent obstacle must be of gigantic proportions if it could not be overcome by statesmanship after cheerfully taking this momentous step which irresistibly drove them on to the next the conference proceeded to discuss brown's motion proposing the form the federation was to assume there was to be a general government dealing with matters common to all and in each province a local government having control of local matters the second motion was likewise unanimously concurred in having as it were planted two feet firmly on the ground the conference was now in a good position to stand firmly against divergences of view provincial rivalries and extreme demands end of section six